Good morning. I was talking with John in the back, and as he often does, he looks at me with his compassionate eyes, and uh, I fall for it every time. And he says, I'm so glad that you're teaching this morning so that I don't have to. I said, me too, John. can't tell you how glad I am. <laughs> Mark Twain once said, the very ink in which history is written is merely fluid prejudice. It's a pretty eloquent observation of um, history, and not just history, but of objectivity. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, history typically is uh, not that objective. Uh, the, I wonder if Mark Twain was reading the newspaper when he made that comment, because news, of course, we know very well is not objective. It's, it's sort of funny when you look at the different perspectives uh, in the news. Like if, uh, if a, our Democratic president says something, and then you watch the Democratic news stations, boy, they just laud and, and uh, applaud it. But then you watch the one that's skewed more toward the Republican side, and boy, they just tearing it down. Exact same you know, speech. But then when there's a Republican president, of course, it's just the opposite. And it's, it's sort of fascinating because we, we make a verdict, we make a decision based off the ending assumption rather than actually basing it off the words that are said. Uh, sometimes you see this on commercials as well, especially I notice when they are, when GM and Ford are doing their commercials for their trucks. Whenever uh, you know, they always show driving side by side, and they show the tests of these trucks. But whenever it's a GM commercial, and they're testing Ford, the goal of testing Ford is to show its weakness, and the goal of testing GM is to show its strength. But then, if it's a Ford commercial, it's just the opposite. They begin with the assumption either that it's successful or it's unsuccessful, and then they find data to go with the assumption that is already there under the guise of, of, of a legitimate test. You know, that sounds sort of wrong, but the reality is this sort of testing is biblical. How in the world? Well, let's look. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. Because God and Satan also do these tests, you might call them road tests, on our lives. And their road tests have two totally different goals. And basically, these, these tests reveal how the rubber meets the road, as it were, in our Christian lives. So we're going through a series in which we um, take a single message from each book of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible. And when we come to 1 Peter, we are on familiar ground. We actually did a series on 1 Peter. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> it's been a couple years. But uh, 1 Peter is a wonderful book by, the, by our uh, often favorite Apostle Peter. But rather than just pick one passage like we did when we went through the book, I thought we could trace or chase a theme through the book because Peter does have a theme, or at least a couple of really imp- themes that he emphasizes. And um, 
Anyway, so, but before we get to that, I want to tell you a story. I was sitting by uh, a window in my house this week, early morning, and I was actually working on this lesson. And I heard something, you know, outside. I mean, it sounded just like a drone. And I knew it wasn't my drone, because I wasn't flying my drone. But so I figured it was my neighbor. My neighbor, my next door neighbor, has a son who's a policeman that he often comes sometimes and flies his police drone around to practice because there aren't any restrictions in our area. So I thought, well, maybe he's doing that. But I thought, why in the world would he do that in the dark? And then I thought, oh well, you know, no big deal. But usually when you hear a drone, you hear it fly by. You know, it doesn't just stay there. I thought the thing is like hovering outside my window. And then I realized it was a mosquito <laughs> right by my ear. Okay, and I'm not even 80 yet, Rex. <laughs> but what was funny about that, actually I told that, that story to Kathy and she said, what cup of coffee were you on at that point? Because it wasn't enough. But I tell that story because it's funny how when I first thought it was, you know, my neighbor's drone, I thought, eh, no big deal. I don't need to do anything. But when I realized it was a mosquito in my house that is going to either bite me or worse, my wife, then I've got to do business with this mosquito. Same sound, but with a different perspective, all of a sudden... The application was different. It's amazing how a change of perspective can change a course of action. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start down in verse 3 as we look at a theme. And really the theme you might just sort of summarize is, how do you keep going when you're ready to quit? How do you keep going when you're just ready to quit? 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter gives us perspective in these verses. First of all, he gives us amazing news. I mean, he says in verses 3 through 5, you have a salvation. God has caused you to be born again. And he uses Jesus' phrase here of born again. Remember when Jesus made that comment to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He said, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then, so what does it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus goes on to explain in what is the, one of the best-known verses in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. This is the good news. And Peter actually explains this a little bit more, a little further on. We'll stay here in chapter 1, but flip, if you would, to chapter 3 and look down at verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. And it's something that if you've never really thought about, you need to think about. And God, in his sovereignty, may have actually brought you here today for this purpose. L- listen to these words, or look at, look, at the, look at the verse. Verse 18, Christ also died for sins. He died for sins, and not just sins in general, but your sins, particularly, and my sins. He died for all sins, because, as Peter says, he died for sins once for all. Once for all doesn't just mean, you know, once and it's done, but once and it's done for all sins. All sins he died for, including yours. And he needed to, because our the penalty for our sins is eternal separation from God. So he says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just, meaning Jesus, the holy Jesus, for the unjust. That's us. The just died for the unjust. For what purpose? So that he might bring us to God. There's no other way to God except through Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross has provided that. So back in chapter 1, when he talks about this amazing salvation, and he says, it's, it's a living hope. We're born again. The resurrection of Jesus shows that it's so. The verse 4, it's an inheritance which is imperishable and won't fade away. I always think about uh, uh, pictures or garments or whatever that we decorate our homes with, and if you set it by a window and you don't move it, what happens to it? It fades. I mean, you, can, you don't put garments by windows, but you know what I mean put a picture by a window and you come back in a year and a half and it's just it's faded the the glory of that original is gone and that's everything in this world but we're told that our salvation doesn't fade it never gets old it is forever in its pristine wonderful condition and so he says in verse six in this you greatly rejoice so i've spent a little time on that to show the reason why we get excited about our salvation i hope that you're still excited about your salvation because it hasn't faded. It's just as new as the day you said yes to Christ. In fact, it's, it's just, in, in, in light of eternity, it's hardly begun. It is forever. It is forever, Peter says. You greatly rejoice. But then notice he, he quickly puts it in context. You greatly rejoice in a context that isn't necessarily happy. Even though now... Okay, now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So in this verse, we've got an interesting, interesting perspective. You are rejoicing in the midst of distress. You have been distressed, is Peter's words. In this life, we have various trials, and they're real. I mean, there's no painting a picture around it. There's nothing about our salvation that makes our distressing trials less distressing. They are distressing. 
and various trials. Notice the, they come in all sizes. Yours are different than mine. Mine are different than yours. Yours are different today than they will be in the future and than they have been in the past. But have you noticed that they always seem to be so uh, impregnable? Or maybe to say, you can't get around them? The trials are so discouraging sometimes. And no matter what we've gone through in the past, sometimes whatever we are going through right now feels like, you know, this is the end of the road. I just, Lord, I just don't see how you're going to get me through this. Because our emotions are attached to what's now, not to what happened yesterday. By the way, just a little sidebar, this is why it's helpful if you don't to keep a journal. And by a journal, I don't just mean, you know, a diary. You know, today I went to Kroger, mowed the yard. You know, not like that. But put your emotions in it and say, I'm pretty discouraged right now. Frankly, I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this. And the benefit of that is in five years when you go back and read it, you're going to go, wonder what that was about. <laughs> you don't even remember. Because God got you through it in such a way that it doesn't even affect you emotionally now. That's one of the great benefits of having a journal. Not to remind you of how horrible yesterday was, but to remind you God got you through it. In fact, got you through it 100%. You know, God's gotten you through 100% of your past. (laughs) He really has. And that is still going to happen for the future. So Peter says, look, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. Two words there, for a little while, that shows that what we're going through is temporary. It's just a little while. Get big perspective. It hurts, but it's just a little while. And then he also says, if necessary. That's the hard part, is realizing that what we're going through is in the grand plan of God, necessary. And we'll see as we go through here why it's necessary. And one, one other thing here. Notice the final word of verse 6, at least in my version. It says various trials. In the margin, my margin says, or temptations. Well, which is it? Trials or temptations? We don't know unless it's con- the context has to determine that. There are two different words in the New Testament for testing or trials, or temptation. It depends on how you translate the word, where you get the translation, trials, temptations, or testing. Two different words, two different purposes, two different kinds of tests. We've already talked about it. When Ford tests GM, they have one kind of test in mind, a test to show weakness. When Ford tests Ford, they have a different test in mind. That is a test to show strength. One is guided a test that makes something want to fail. Another is a test that wants to show its strength. Two different tests, two different purposes. The word here for uh, trials in this, in this verse is the word that generally means to test for the purpose of showing weakness. Now, it doesn't strictly mean that, but it came to mean that because when, well, strictly what it meant was uh, sort of more objective. We're going to test to show the quality of whatever it is we're testing. We're going to show that it's good, or we're going to show that it's bad, that it, that it reacts in a good way, or it reacts in a bad way. And sometimes throughout the New Testament, we will actually see God uh, conducting this type of test, not because he wants to make us fail, but he wants to see 
which way we're going to go, or he wants us to see which way we're going to go. But when Satan tests us, it's always this word, and it's always with the goal of failing. The reason I say that this word tends to yield toward failure is because we're so weak often. When we are put in a situation where, where our faith is tested, very often we skew to failure. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that. But we're told here that we've been distressed by various trials uh, or, or temptations, so depending on how, how the context is. But here it probably makes more sense of trials because the goal, God's goal in allowing this is verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice the word tested is there in verse 7. That's the other word. That's the word that shows its success. So God's goal in, in allowing trials in our lives is not that we would fail. It's so that we would be tested as if by fire, meaning the thoroughness of the test doesn't have anything to do with fire. It means it's just a metaphor showing the thoroughness of a test, sort of like refining, which is a, a metaphor he uses later in the book. But the goal of this test is that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus, meaning when Jesus comes. So, this is the word that has the goal of success. I'm reading 1 Corinthians right now in my, uh, my daily reading, and I see these two words all throughout the book, and it's really sort of fascinating. But one of the places that, that is very fascinating to me and very encouraging is a, a point in the book where Paul talks about what's called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is something that we Christians are actually going to stand before. It's not a judgment for sin. That took place on the cross. This judgment is a judgment of rewards. And the goal, the word that's used in that context, is the word that talks about a, a thorough test for success. So the goal, God's goal, or Christ's goal at the judgment seat of Christ, is not to look on all that you've done, narrow down on everything you've done wrong, and to wag his finger at you and say, what were you thinking? It's not that at all. There's a thorough test, and everything, to use that context, that's worthless, just like gets burned up in the sense that it just sort of disappears, and all that's left is what Christ will commend. It's a beautiful picture, and this wonderful word gives us God's heart behind it, is not to find what we've done wrong, but to find what we've done well and to reward it. Well, here's a, a principle that we can glean from the text here in 1 Peter. We can rejoice because trials are temporary and necessary, but our inheritance is forever. We can rejoice because trials are temporary and necessary, but our inheritance is forever. That means that whatever it is you're struggling with right now, you may not necessarily need to have the goal of trying to wiggle out of the struggle. Because if it's part of God's plan, you may not be able to wiggle out of it. It may not be his desire for you to wiggle out of it. Sort of like Christ in Gethsemane. When he prayed before the Father, he said, uh, Lord, or Father, please take this cup away, but not my will, but yours be done. If it's your will that I be here, 
then Lord, I will stay and I will see it through and I will trust you even though it hurts. Trials are sometimes necessary, to use Peter's own words. So our goal in these trials is not necessarily to find uh, a way out, but rather to find a way to be faithful. Trials prove our faith, Peter tells us, and they glorify Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, You greatly rejoice, there it is again, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, here's the second principle. We can rejoice because our salvation is certain. Well, there are so few things we can be certain of in life. Salvation is one of those things. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ... You can know that whether you are live to be a ripe old age or whether, you, and what do you know, many of us have already, or you can um, die in your prime. You know I love you or I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's a certain salvation. In a context of struggle, Peter gives us wisdom at how to live faithfully in these times. So, with that in mind, let's turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 12. It's not the only time Peter mentions this. It's really sort of his theme throughout, an idea of hope in the context of suffering. And the chapters we've skipped basically talk about staying faithful in all kinds of contexts of suffering. Uh, He says, you know, whether it's to the government or whether it's in uh, an employee-employer situation, or whether it's in the home, whatever the context is of unjust leadership, just like Jesus, we buckle down and follow Christ and trust him, even when when, uh, it's unjust. In in chapter 4, look down at verse 12. He continues this idea of testing. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So hopefully those words sort of have a context for you in light of what we just read in chapter 1, that the fiery ordeal among you is the same idea of when when, Paul, uh, when uh, Peter writes in the first chapter, these fiery trials that you're dealing with, these trials which come upon you, to use Peter's word here, for your testing. He's giving us perspective. And when he says, don't be surprised, it's helpful to read that because we're often surprised. When something goes wrong in our lives or when we go through some kind of a struggle, um we'll sort of think, God, what went wrong here? What did I do wrong? What did somebody do wrong? What did you do wrong (laughs) that I'm struggling like this? Because I sort of have the assumption, Lord, that if I do all I'm supposed to do, and you're definitely doing what you're supposed to do, uh, why are we going through this? Well, remember, this was exactly what Job's counselors told him 
wasn't it? Job done everything right. And what Job didn't realize, what the counselors didn't realize, is what you and I get privy to, that there is something going on higher than what we see. There is God's sovereign plan, and there's also another plan. We have an enemy. We have a real enemy, and his goal is our destruction. And we'll talk about him in just a minute. But uh, when he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, he says that because we are surprised. Peter says, get perspective. The normal Christian life involves struggle. If you're struggling, congratulations, you're normal. If it's a deep struggle, you're normal. The fiery ordeal among you, Peter says. Um, When's the last time you had a fiery ordeal? I mean, I'm talking about something that was really tough. I don't mean that you, you know, couldn't find a parking place at Dillard's. I mean something hard in life. Thank God those are few and far between. But we've all had them. And we all will have them. And those moments, Peter says, don't be surprised when they come. It comes upon you, notice Peter says, for your testing. It's not something strange happening. It is part of, part of God's plan. But then he says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So again, you've got this context of deep struggle and the context of rejoicing. Because our focus, our, our perspective, is not just on what we're struggling with. It goes beyond that to what's coming, to this wonderful future. Someone once asked Roger Staubach, how do you keep playing professional football when you get injured? And Roger basically said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. In other words, that's normal. If you wait till you're feeling great, we wouldn't have anybody out on the field past, you know, two plays. Christian life is the same thing. You can't wait to walk with God until everything's going great, or you'll never walk with God. The Christian life is playing hurt. We all hurt. And honestly, we could all stand up and give a one hour and a half testimony on what this week has contributed to our spiritual life with regard to pain. It's been a hard week, hasn't it? Has it been a hard week for anybody other than me? Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. I see that hand. Good. It's tough. Life is tough. And thankfully, we got the truth of God's Word to remind us God knows that. And for some inexplicable reason, that is part of God's plan. It keeps us close to Him. Peter writes to make sure our perspectives are uh, good. And he says here, he says the word he uses here for ordeal, or he says that the fiery ordeal among you, is the same that we saw back in chapter 1. It's the one that basically tests us to see which way we'll go. Keep your finger here in 1 Peter and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Sometimes it's tough to determine the difference between a test and a temptation. You know, is what I'm going through right now a temptation from Satan? Or is what I'm going through right now a test from God? Job didn't know. And in, in a sense, from a different perspective, 
the same act could have different purposes. We don't know necessarily what it is. But here's what we do know. God doesn't tempt us to do wrong, James tells us. So if you were tempted to do wrong, we know the source of that. But if it's just a struggle, and it's just, if it's just unjust, if it's just something that you're going through that you feel like you shouldn't be going through, well, that may more likely be a trial. Look at Deuteronomy 8, start in verse 2. So you know the context of Deuteronomy. The children of Israel, the Hebrews, had come out of bondage in Egypt. God had led them for 40 years, and now Deuteronomy is sort of Moses' summary of that time. And he said in verse 2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you. Notice that. The Lord has led you. In the wilderness these 40 years. That, here are the purposes, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, pause there for a second. Now, Obviously, the Old Testament was not written in Greek, so it was written in Hebrew. And so we can't necessarily make a one-to-one comparison between those two New Testament words that I mentioned. But when the translators of the Old Testament translated it into Greek, sometimes it's called the Septuagint, and that's what a lot of first century Jews actually read because they knew Greek and didn't know Hebrew that much, the translators used that word that we mentioned in the in the New Testament, that talks about the test, the goal of the test to see which way you're going to go. And they use that word here. And that makes sense, that God tests them to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And that is humbling. Humbling. He says that they might humble you, that he might humble you. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And again, here's the purpose, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God used physical things in their life to teach them spiritual truths. He put them in a context of lack and of need so that he could teach them spiritual truths and to reveal what was in their heart. Do your trials reveal what's in your heart? I mean, to you? Do, you? do you realize that part of what the Lord's doing when you go through trouble is to open up your heart and to show you who you are? That is sometimes an encouraging revelation, but a lot of times it's very discouraging too because it shows us, Lord, I am so weak. I'm not handling this well. And it reveals our need. I was speaking to a a friend of mine, Reg Grant. Probably some of you know Reg Grant. uh, Teaches at Dallas Seminary. And uh, he he was talking about he has uh, some chronic pain. And I I asked him, because Reg is so uh, astute or, or so good with putting the so what to the Christian life, I said, what has your chronic pain taught you about God? He said, it teaches me that I need him. Isn't that interesting? Great perspective. Because if we don't have pain, who needs God? I'm doing great. You know? But when we struggle physically, it shows us what's true all the time, but we just don't see until we're struggling. God let them struggle in the wilderness and let them hunger and then fed them with manna. 
I mean, the first meal, it's great. You know, cor- coriander seeds sort of taste like honey. But after year 27 of manna, <laughs> whew. We'll turn back to First Peter, and let's finish this up here. We can't always know whether it's a test or a temptation, but we can know what our response is to be. Our response should always be that we obey God. Always be that we obey God. Now, look at chapter 5. As we said with Job, there is a higher plane going on here. It's not just us struggling with our lives, but there's the Lord and there's Satan also very much concerned with our lives. Chapter 5, look down at verse 8. Peter writes, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There is a a video on YouTube of a lion attacking a baby buffalo. Be easy to find if you wanted to find it. It's a little uh, hard to watch. But I like watching it every now and then. I like to pull it up and to realize, I mean, as soon as you see it within the first five seconds, I'd say it's like a two-minute video. It's really too long. It's like a two-minute video of this lion just crouching and inching forward, looking at this completely ignorant little poor, cute little baby buffalo that never doesn't have any clue that the lion's there. I mean, the lion's well hidden, but you can see him. And he just inches forward, and it takes like two or three minutes before finally the lion just leaps out, grabs it, and that little buffalo doesn't have a chance. It's sad to watch. And I'm thinking, why didn't the photographer do something other than take this picture? But I like to look at that video because it it, it shows me, it reminds me of this verse. I am that buffalo. You are that little baby buffalo. And that lion, we're way outmatched. It's sort of like us swimming in the water with a great white shark. We're in his domain. Apart from the grace of God, we don't have a hope. We are all but devoured. Peter says, it's important to trust God in humility. He said just prior to this, humble yourselves. How do we do that? Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be of sober spirit. So that gives context. What does it mean to have sober spirit? It means you pray. That's what it means. It means you pray. In fact, he said this back in verse chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. To have a sober spirit is to have a spirit that is, you know, awake, that is aware of of the reality that it's not just me and my hard life, but it's me and my hard life and my sovereign, powerful God and an adversary. The word here for adversary is it was was used uh, in a, a courtroom. It means the guy that's against you, the guy that wants to see you fail. And the word here for devours doesn't mean that he, he bites you and rips you and then leaves you there. The idea is swallowed whole. I mean, you're taken out of commission. And so the great white shark might not be a better uh, metaphor here than a lion that rips you up. 
It doesn't mean devouring in the sense of, uh, you know, just maiming and leaving you there. It means he wants to take you out of the picture altogether. If you are walking with God, if you are faithful with the Lord, if, if he is using you in some way, and he is, if you are walking with Christ, you've got an adversary. You've got an enemy. And he's got a goal for you. He's crouching. He's waiting. When we are not sober in spirit, so that he can take you out. Thankfully, we are not left to swim in the water with the great white by ourselves. We are not the baby buffalo that's just there out on the prairie without a hope or a prayer. We are, to look at the context here, look at verse 6. Humble yourselves under, notice, the mighty hand of God. We're humbling ourselves under one who's all-powerful. We, are, we have an adversary, but we also have an advocate. We have our Lord with us. But it's important to realize that we've got this enemy. Um, somewhere I've got a stat on George Barna did a survey. Yeah, he did a survey of Americans who described themselves as Christian and asked questions that included Satan and demons. 60% of Americans strongly agreed or somewhat agreed with the statement, quote, Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. 8% were not sure what they believe about Satan. These are people who self-identified as Christian. A person not believing in Satan plays right in to Satan's lie. Because if you don't believe he's there, you're not going to defend yourself against him, right? If, if what you hear buzzing in your ear you think is the neighbor's drone, who cares? That's his problem. But if it's a mosquito in my house, then all of a sudden we're in a different perspective. If Satan is just a symbol of evil, well, that's intangible, untouchable, yeah, whatever. But if he is your adversary, your personal enemy. Now, all of a sudden, that's a completely different perspective. Peter knew this firsthand. We won't turn to these places, but you remember, Peter knows what, knew what it was like to be devoured. At least twice in the Gospels we see this. It, the Gospels record when Peter didn't do what he's telling us to do. <laughs> Up at Caesarea Philippi, Peter had just, you know, stepped to the plate, swung for the fence, and hit it, and Home run. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, absolutely right, Jesus said. You got it right. And then Jesus says, now, let me tell you a little bit about the Son of the living God. I'm going to die on the cross. Peter said, whoa, pulls Jesus aside. Let me tell you, Jesus, uh, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Oof. How'd you like Jesus to look you in the eye and say, get behind me, Satan? Well, Satan was the source of, of Peter's words because Peter, Jesus said, had his mind set on the interest of man, not on the interest of God. The second uh, event in which Peter was directly involved with Satan was the night before Jesus was crucified in the upper room. Remember, the, uh, the Lord told Peter, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And uh, Jesus said, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that 
your faith would not fail, and that when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus not only predicted that Peter would be sifted like wheat, but he also predicted that Peter would turn. He says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Peter tells us the same thing here in verse 9. 1 Peter 5, 9. He says, but resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Jesus had prayed for Peter. I have prayed that your faith would not fail. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We heard that this morning, didn't we? Our brothers and sisters are suffering in the world to a degree that is even greater than us. When you realize that you're not the only one that's going through what you're going through, then you can be strengthened to keep going. But when Satan gets you off by yourself and you think, there's nobody struggling like you are, just give it up. You're never going to get it right. Then we tend to listen to that lie, don't we? This is why, men, you need to meet with other men and talk about what men talk about. We need the encouragement of one another. This is why, ladies, you need to meet with the other ladies and talk about what ladies talk about. What do ladies talk about? Men. (laughs) That was a cheap shot. But you you get my point. We need one another. We need to not just be solo Superman or Superwoman Christian, but to be involved in relationships beyond just me and God. There is no just me and God anywhere in the New Testament for Christians. It is the body of Christ working together and and learning and growing together. So Peter learned the hard way what he's teaching us. He learned from experience. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist him. That's a defensive command. Well, I get the picture here of a, um, of a, of a line of football players, and you know the guy, the guy that's like right in front of the center? What is he, the nose guard? or what? Who's the guy right in front of the center? The center snaps. What? Nose guard. Nose guard. Did I say it right? Yes. Because yes. I don't know a lot about football, but hey, you got this defensive line, and how do they stand? I mean, they're in a real uncomfortable position. How would you like to start every play, you know, on all fours? But, but this is the picture I get. You are ready. You are defensive. And to have a sober mind, you don't just sort of walk willy-nilly through the day. You realize, wait a minute, i got to have the shield of faith up today. i got to be firm in my faith today. I can't just sort of stick it in neutral in my Christian life today. Because I have an enemy, and, and the enemy is like a lion. He's waiting. He is waiting for me, and he wants to devour me. How do we resist him? Firm in our faith. Well, uh, I have a cartoon that I saw some years ago that it shows five runners. And with the Olympics going on right now, it's sort of an interesting uh, perspective. But you've got these five runners, first place, second place, third place, all the way down to fifth place. First place crosses the line, and, and you have a little bubble above his head that says, life is great. Second place, almost about to cross the line, says, life is good. Third place, life is okay. Fourth place, Life is unfair. And then fifth place, he's not even running. He's just standing there. He says, I quit. And I don't know what the study was, but I saw a study one time that showed 
the uh, the the emotional experience of of the gold, silver, and bronze medalists, and of course the gold was just off the chart elated, and the bronze was actually elated, but the silver, the silver was like they they get discouraged a lot because they're so close to gold. <laughs> We've, we've got a former Olympian right here. And the, the challenge is, is I didn't make gold, and I was so close. But the bronze is like, I'm just glad to be standing here. Wow. And, of course, the gold's happy, the bronze is happy, the silver's not. It's all perspective. Peter says, you know, you, if your circumstances are going to determine your commitment to run, then you've got to keep an eternal perspective, otherwise we're going to quit. We're going to just stop. And we're not going to keep going. Well, verse 10 is a great summary, not only of our lesson today, but actually of the whole book of 1 Peter. Peter writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The challenge there is to stand firm uh, when we want to quit. And perspective gives us that help. Now, I've read this letter to you before. I know I have. But I'm going to read it again because it never gets old. This is a, a, a college student who had two problems that many college students have, low grades and not enough money. But she didn't want to tell her parents. So she wrote them a letter. Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a clue on my, drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I fall in love with a guy named Dirk. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce, and we've been going steady for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, and although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future, and then the page turns, and on the next page it says, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C in French and I flunked math. It is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. Love, your daughter. <laughs> you see, even bad news can sound like good news from the right perspective. What a great, great letter. So our applications, once again, we can rejoice because trials are temporary and necessary, but... Our inheritance is forever. And second, we can rejoice because our salvation is certain. Our salvation is certain. Let me give you a very free and interpretive translation of these last few verses here. This is not Peter's words. These are my, my words, sort of interpretive. The trials that you're going through right now are for a little while. But when the eternal glory of God comes, God himself will put you in the holy condition you belong. God himself will affirm the decision of grace he has already made about you. 
God himself will make you strong and capable. God himself will cause you to be fixed and unchangeable, firmly loyal, constant, and unswerving. The good news is you don't have to try to do this for the rest of your life. You just have to do it today. Isn't that good news? We think about trying to do this the rest of our life. We can't bear it. But if we just think about, all right, I can probably make it till dinner. (laughs) Then we're being biblical. Because as Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. You just take care of today. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the perspective that this text gives us. Boy, how it's easy to get off track. How we can listen to the lie of the enemy, our adversary. He wants to tell us that uh, we might as well quit. Thank you for the perspective that gives us insight beyond today to the future, to eternity. That this wonderful salvation you've given us in Christ is ours. And Lord, we pray for anyone here today that has not yet placed their faith in Christ that they would quit putting it off, but would instead open their heart to the one who died on the cross to pay for their sins, who rose again on the third day to show that sin is paid for, if they would just believe it. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder, and we look forward to your coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.